When Moses led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, he learned the power and the love of God. Join me, Pastor Hook, as we learn lessons from the Exodus and God's great rescue. We are in episode 15 of our great study, Exodus, God's Great Rescue. And when we left Friday, when we left at the last episode, Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh was put out by this. And so he tells the overseers of the Hebrew slaves to tell them that they have to make bricks, but that they're not going to provide the straw. The slaves have to go out and find the straw, but they've got to produce the same amount of bricks. And this is a retaliation of Pharaoh to elevate his stance as Pharaoh to force to break the Hebrews of their idea of slavery, that you are not going to be a slave. And this is, uh, we see this throughout history. Uh, for example, an example that came to mind was uh, when you have a large, powerful organization, a large, powerful organization, the only way that the, the workers of that organization, many times the only way that the workers of that organization can fight this big, huge, powerful organization is to create a union because a union kind of collectively bargains against the organization to bring a balance of power. And unions have been a great organ have been great organizations through time to kind of bring a voice to the table for the worker on large organizations that don't listen to the voice of the worker. And so many, many organizations don't want unions. And so when there's an organization that's considering unions, even today, oftentimes the organizations will elevate their threats so that the, so that the, the unions don't organize. Now, there's a flip side is that sometimes these organizations, sometimes people will create organizations like unions when they really don't have a need for a union. I mean, it's just basically a way for them to to create more power than the organization itself. I mean, it should be a balancing of the power of the between the worker and the and the organization. It shouldn't be the workers completely taking over the organization. There needs to be a balance of those two powers. And so sometimes unions can can be overpowering and and well, we'll leave it at that. So um, that's that was kind of one example I had is that threat the threat of this of to Pharaoh is that the Hebrew slaves will actually ha come to the table with some more bargaining power. Uh, and so, th so Pharaoh is raising his threat level so that they don't leave and he's going to crush them. That's what Pharaoh wants to do. He wants to crush them. He wants to stamp out any opportunity for these people to even think about leaving. He's going to make it so miserable for their life that they won't even think about leaving. And it seems to work because where we left it on our last episode is that after after Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, they came back to the Hebrew slaves and they were very angry at Aaron and Moses. They said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and you have put a sword in their hand to kill us. In other words, you've made our life miserable. You said you're going to deliver us from slavery in Egypt. 
and we're not being delivered. As a matter of fact, you've made our life miserable. And so now what does Moses do? Moses thrown into this situation as a leader. Well, he goes back to God. And I think we'll pick up that story. Let's just take a look. This is uh, Exodus 5, verses 22 and 23. Moses then returns to the Lord and says, Lord, why? Why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. So Moses, only following God's order, went to Pharaoh, said, let my people go. Pharaoh said, no, I'm going to make make it more life and more difficult. And now God hears from Moses. Moses comes to God and says, why haven't you rescued them? Why, why, why are you making my life so miserable? This is horrible. You called me to do this. You told me to do this. I went and I did it. And now the people hate me. And we even talked about how last week, how sometimes leadership is difficult because you get True leaders follow the truth wherever it takes them. And the truth was that God wanted Moses to rescue the people out of slavery in Egypt. Moses had no choice but to follow God's will. And now the people are angry at Moses. And this happens in leadership all the time. Where a leader knows this is the right course of action. I have no choice but to go down this path. But the people that are leading or the people that he's leading do not necessarily like to go on a new path. They like the comfort of the existing path, even if they're living in slavery, even if it's not a good path for their kids and for their grandkids or for or in an organization. Now, oftentimes, some organizations will go in directions that are not healthy for the organization. That happens also. Um, I remember seeing, I, I cannot find this. If you all know this, but it was a saying on a wall that said basically that change is leadership. Uh, something like change is just something that leaders do just to show that they're doing something, but they're really not doing anything. And the interesting thing about this quote is that it's from like 500 BC. I mean, leaders have been doing the whole idea of leadership goes back thousands and thousands of years. Sometimes leaders need to do what they're doing to make the, the organization healthy. And people aren't going to like the change, but it's the only way to keep the organization healthy. But other times, leaders just do it because they want to pat themselves on the back and say, I'm making change and it's, and it's good for your organization, but it's really not good for your organization. But either way, whenever a leader makes a change, your organization is not going to be happy about it because people are, comfort, people are comfortable with the way things are, even if they're in slavery. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh to start to break this this hold of slavery that that Pharaoh has over the Israelites, over the Hebrews, and it does not go well. This is the first volley, if you will say, in war. This is the first attack. This is the first gunfire. And Pharaoh doesn't like this, so he, he threatens the people by giving them more work without any relief or recompense. And so, of course, the people are upset. I mean, their, their workload just goes up. But all great things require sacrifice. All great things require sacrifice. God is going to do his part. He's going to bring upon them the plagues. But, but there's going to be a sacrifice for the Hebrews themselves. They're going to have to get out of their comfort zone. They're going to actually have to leave their situation. 
of slavery. They're going to have to go somewhere else. They're going to have to go to the promised land. That's not going to go all that well for them either. There's going to be sacrifice. Anytime something great is done, God's going to do his part, but there will be sacrifice on our part. That is just the way it is. Because great leaders, I think I mentioned this on Friday, but great leaders follow the truth. Great leaders look around them and they say, what is the truth? And they take off the blinders. They don't have this big, huge Johari window where there's things that other people know about the situation that they don't know. Great leaders try to get as much information as possible, try to explore every possibility of information, try to discern that information, understand that information, and then make a decision to go forward. That's where great leaders, that's all that they do. They pursue the truth. They fervently pursue the truth wherever the truth takes them. I was thinking about this um, over the weekend because I preached on this on Sunday. Um, Like, what would be a truth that the church would find uncomfortable but we'd have to change? And uh, the, the one that came to me, and I have no idea, but it's in the news right now about UFOs, right? There's uh, apparently the Army or the Navy or someone of the government's Defense Department has information about potential of UFOs. Now, I have no idea if UFOs exist or not. I really, really don't know. And I actually don't even know if I really, really care. Uh, the only, my, only, my only connection to UFOs was that Jennifer and I, when we were dating, used to watch a show called The X-Files. Uh, that was just a wonderful show back in the 80s. And we really, really enjoyed that show. And it was all about the paranormal paranormal and supernatural and, and UFOs and stuff like that. And we really, because Jennifer and I both um, love to just think impossible things for the day, right? Like what are some things that could happen today? Or the, you know, Jennifer and I are both, um, well, anyway, I won't get into that. But uh, so, um that's the, so what would happen though if if we were proven that there were UFOs like what would that do to our world what would that do to the nation what would it do to the church the christian church because the bible is really silent on UFOs the way the bible reads is that god created the earth and created man on the earth and we're supposed to subdue the earth but that, but he doesn't say really anything about what he did outside of our universe, or not our universe, but our, our solar system and other planets and all that sort of thing. And so the Bible doesn't necessarily preclude the idea that there's UFOs. It certainly would, you know, challenge us. But it'd be interesting to talk to people from other planets and say, what do you believe about God? How did the universe come to be created? Where do you think it came from and all that? I mean, it would be kind of exciting for me. I would be really thrilled to find somebody from another planet. But there there could be, I mean, it would definitely change our perception of what, you know, how what God created and when he created it and all that sort of thing. Especially if they're a little bit more intelligent uh, beings, they might be able to share with us more information. But I still believe, you know, fervently that God created the heavens and the earth. I'm, I'm ab- there's no other explanation in my mind as an engineer, as a fairly deep thinking engineer. There's no way that all of this could have come created out of nothingness. Like, where did it come from? Where did matter come from? Where did mass come from? Where did all these things come from? And I, I don't necessarily have any other explanation from it except that 
some force outside of our known universe had to create it. Well, that's God, right? That's, that is the creator of the universe. And how he did it, <laughs> we can ask him when, when we get to him. Like, how did you do it? And he may tell us. But, but for me, UFOs don't necessarily cause a huge concern. It wouldn't be surprising at all if there was UFOs. But the Bible is silent on UFOs. The Bible is silent on life outside of our earth. It's like this relationship that God has with humanity is here on this earth. And so we don't really, the Bible is silent about other things. But so, but maybe, maybe there are, maybe there are, maybe they're not. I don't know. But if a UFO were to show up, a Christian leader would have to either say, well, is this the truth and and we deal with it or do we hide from the truth and we kind of obscure the truth and spin the truth and all that sort of thing no good leaders take whatever truths are and they take them as far as they can they relentlessly pursue the truth that's what a good leader does and take and wherever the truth takes them that's where they go and us as christians we should not be afraid of that because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so Jesus is the truth. And he also said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. So we as Christians should be in love with the truth because the truth is not spin and the truth doesn't create people who use violence and lies and deceit to try to, to, try to mold the truth into something that it's not. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. The truth was that God came to Moses and said, you're going to rescue my people. And Moses did. He followed that truth relentlessly. And the people aren't happy with it because it means change. And it means trouble. And it means they got to shoulder some of the burden on this part. I mean, what does God expect God to just come home and, you know, give them Lamborghinis and they all get in and they drive into the desert and God sends an oasis? No, that's, that's not what happens. Life is difficult. Life creates challenges and God wants us to go through those challenges to grow in our faith to to depend on him to grow and so he's not going to give everything to us in a silver platter his silver platter was Jesus who when you realize the importance of being in the kingdom and the joy of being in the kingdom of what it means to be in the kingdom it's better than any other form of rescue that God could have done it is the ultimate rescue Jesus all right so now we're going to move into verse 6 because now the people are upset with Moses. Moses goes to God and says, why have you done this? But then the Lord is going to talk to Moses again. So we're going to go to chapter 6, verses 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. So it's, it doesn't sound like he's angry necessary at Moses, but the Lord is telling Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Now Moses, now God's getting a bit worked up and he's, he's flaring his nostrils and he's going to tell Moses, listen, now Pharaoh's going to see by my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. In other words, if Moses, if, if Pharaoh wants this battle, bring it on because now he's going to see my mighty hand and I'm going to show Pharaoh how mighty my hand can be. We'll just keep escalating this thing until finally I break Pharaoh 
and that's what I'm going to do. And this is what happens when you go to battle, right? Battles only, <laughs> battles win. Whenever you go to war with somebody, if you decide now you're going to go to war with any country, right? You do negotiation, you do negotiation, do negotiation. You try to broker a deal. You try to broker a deal. You try to do, try to do anything that you possibly can to avoid war. You really do because war is hell. War is painful. War, people die. People get hurt. But you try to broker a deal. You try to broker a deal. You try to broker a deal. Finally, you realize there is no deal that can be brokered, right? Now we're going to go to war. And now when you go to war, you have to be willing to lay everything on the table. You have to be able to escalate. the. You have to win the war at all costs. Because if you're going to go to war, you have to basically throw everything you possibly can at the battle to try to win that, to try to win the war. That's how wars are won. And the only way that a war ends is either complete annihilation on both sides or one side has more power and more control over the other side. As a matter of fact, in Augustine, when he talked about um, just war, just war theory, um, basically, if two sides are fairly equally matched, then when they go to war, they just find out which side is the stronger. And it, it, the same thing happen, happens in nature, right? You have two bucks fighting each other and one of them is going to lose. And the one that loses runs away and the one that wins goes to get and mating with all the other does in the herd, right? I mean, that's this is how it works in nature. And so in societies, when societies decide to go to war, it's basically to find out who is more powerful. To, like, let the most powerful succeed. And so they go to war, the most powerful succeeds. The one who's not powerful then succeed, you know, um, pays fealty or, you know, says, okay, we, we, we understand you won the war. We're going to sign the peace treaty. You won. And they do that. That's how wars win. Um, but, but you have to be able to throw everything at the war. You have to be able to throw everything at it. And, and that is a painful, horrible process. But now Pharaoh has, oh, and I was going to tell you, Augustine. So Augustine's just war theory said, there's two things. One of the ways you don't fight a war is if you realize that you are completely, completely overpowered. Like it would be, I assume that North Korea, if they were to fight us, that we would win single-handedly, no question about it. It would not be a just war for North Korea to fight us because we would destroy them. And so therefore... They're, the ju the just thing for them to do is not to inflict the pain and the suffering of all their people to fight this battles where we annihilate them. And that and you know Augustine talked about this in his just war theory. If they're kind of equally matched, then go to war. but if it's completely unmatched, then the people who are subservient or the, the least powerful should in a just war series you know theory, they should just give up. They shouldn't allow that all that death and destruction. but oftentimes they don't pursue the truth. Uh, and the truth, the, that, that's why dictators are so dangerous, because they don't pursue the truth. They pursue their own interests. Because the truth is, is they would be annihilated, and they should never go to war with us. They should sign a treaty. It's so, it's so maddening. Anyway, um, we're going to go back into verse 1, or verse 2, chapter 6, verse 2. Oh, uh, so God says, by my mighty hand, this is, this is God saying, I have might. I'm, I'm going to be powerful. I'm going to... 
I'm going to crush Pharaoh. Then God also said to Moses, this is verse 2, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. And you'll remember that this, uh, well, the term God Almighty, this in the Hebrew, verse 3, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. He did. That's El Shaddai, God Almighty. Um, El Shaddai is Hebrew. It's actually, nobody knows where Shaddai comes from. It, it, when it was translated, when the, when the Jewish people translated it into Greek, they, one of the places was Pantocrator. Pantocrator, all-powerful. Almighty, God Almighty. And here it's it's God Almighty. That's how it's, the, he's the creator of everything. He's God Almighty. He is El Shaddai. He is the most powerful one. Um, that's, that's God Almighty. That's who he is. And he came to Abraham when Abraham was 99 years old. He came to Abraham and said, I will make your, I will make your offspring as num- numerous as the stars. And Abraham says, that's impossible because we can't have children. And God says, I am El Shaddai. I will make this happen. And he did. And he had Isaac and Jacob and all these great people who are now living in Egypt who need to be rescued. Um, he said, I did not make myself fully known to them, but I established a covenant with them and I gave them the land of Canaan where they resided. In other words, El Shaddai, you can't possibly know all of God's power. I guess this is a good way to end. I, if God can create the universe, if he can speak and create the universe, if he knows everything, if he's all-powerful, man, just think about that. That is that is definitely more power than we have ever known or will ever know. And I still think, I mean, the greatest power that God has is to create life. And we, as complicated and as you know, much as we know about science and everything, we cannot create life. It is impossible. And God can create life. He can destroy life. He can create planets and universes. He, with the snap of his fingers, he can do it. And we are completely, we are completely out of his league, completely out of his league. And for that, we bow down and praise him and call him El Shaddai. And now, now the table is set. Now the battle is engaged. God says, all right, let's fight this battle. And Pharaoh will lose. And Pharaoh does lose. But uh, he does he does gain a victory for us, for which we're very grateful. All right, so let's go ahead and end in prayer on that note. Dear God, you are all-powerful. You are God Almighty. Thank you for being God Almighty and on our side. For this, we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.